Lynn Alden captured this well in her excellent piece, An Economic Analysis of Ethereum, which we highly recommend in addition to our own. Similarly observing that there does seem to be a lot of financial activity on Ethereum. Specifically, it's what you would build if you were trying to replicate finance just by looking at it, but not really understanding what the point of it all was. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We are not going to waste any time today. If you have not yet hit part one yesterday's show, we are jumping right back into Only the Strong Survive by Alan Farrington and Big Al, a thorough uh, analysis of what is happening in the crypto space and the fundamental and or lack of a fundamental value case. Uh, so go back to yesterday's episode on the grounding that they laid out. In part one, they talk about the real innovation that Bitcoin is and why it has value. And then part two, they dig into why crypto is in fact a compromise on that very innovation, sometimes entirely to the point of only being able to deliver on their promises through a trend of ever-increasing centralization. And today, we are going to hit a very thorough examination of why crypto is not finance, but rather a mimicry of its functions and operations with none of its underlying purpose. And then in part four, why the investment rationale makes a fundamental error. You are not going to want to miss it, before we dive in, though, a thank you to the sponsors, the amazing sponsors of this show, the Fold app. My wife and I literally just moved almost all of our bills and regular payments to the Fold debit card yesterday, finally. I literally get sats back on everything. And you can too, with 20% off the boosted card, the Spin Plus card, by going to guyswan.com fold, and you get this discount just because, you know, you love Bitcoin Audible. Boom, that's like a, that's the easiest deal ever. Then, where are you going to keep those sats safe? You're going to keep them on your Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It is secure. It is open source. It is easy to use. It is your digital vault for your digital keys. Send your fold sats there so you know they are safe. And get 5% off your Bitbox by going to guyswan.com slash Bitbox. And you just punch in Guy, my name, G-U-Y, at checkout. And lastly, how do you stack? I do it automatically. Every single week since Swan Bitcoin, I literally signed up right at the beginning. Since Swan Bitcoin was available where I live, I have automatically purchased Bitcoin into my savings. Completely serious. And you can too by going to swanbitcoin.com slash guy to sign up. Stack Bitcoin like a machine. Like literally though, like automatically and consistently. Like a machine does things exactly like that. <laughs> you can find all of them in the, all of our sponsors in the show notes and at guyswan.com at the top of the page. Okay, that is enough. It is time for the continuation of Only the Strong Survive. And we are starting with part three. 
Crypto is not finance. There are three ways to make a living in this business. Be first, be smarter, or cheat. Jeremy Irons as John Tooled in Margin Call on Crypto. Too long didn't read. In section three, we observe that non-Bitcoin crypto seems to have positioned itself as bootstrapping its own value by providing financial utility rather than money, and argue that this is likely fundamentally unsustainable and does not solve the core problem. Furthermore, we argue that most conceptions of the health of the ecosystem can only be sensibly interpreted as transient, be they valuation metrics, liquidity and solvency assurances, or the prospect of a link to real economic productivity. Jump to section 4 for a critique of the typical rationale for investing in the space, as far as we believe we can identify it. We reiterate our support for the concept of decentralized finance in general, and that our objection to contemporary crypto is not its purported aims, but the method of its attempt to achieve these aims. If anything, we feel the instantiation is letting down the concept, even if not widely realized at the moment. In section two, we explained our view that the technical design choices inadvertently threaten any element of decentralization that is surely necessary for passable, quote, decentralized finance. In this section, we evaluate the economic merits, or demerits, of the finance that the system realizes. We believe that most crypto projects have attempted to escape the issues explained in Section 2 by catalyzing value via utility instead of security, so far mainly opting for utility in financial applications, and hence adopting the moniker DeFi. We believe this is likely to end in tears because the base layer is neither money nor secure. The finance being constructed seems to us to therefore have the perverse effect of compounding an original fragility that follows from technical and economic unsoundness, but also buying time in the minds of those yet to become fully cognizant of all this. A charitable characterization might be that the hope is to bootstrap value via utility. A harsher characterization would be that it is all an attempt to borrow its way out of debt, monetary and technical. In short, whatever it is, crypto is not finance. To lay some conceptual and rhetorical groundwork for what might seem like a sweeping claim, consider the expression yield farming, a concept that has driven enormous interest and in capital into the crypto ecosystem. The concept does not refer to any real yield. A yield is the generated flow above maintenance or depreciation of the carrying capacity of some stock of economically productive assets. Less the recouped seeds for the next year's crop, a harvest is a yield from a sown field. Less the financing costs, the interest on a bond is a yield. If the issuing business is solvent and profitable in unit economics terms, and hence the par value of the principal is relatively assured, the market will settle on a value that implies a probability of all the interest being paid as promised. The market assesses the productive carrying capacity of economic stock 
generating the ability to pay the flow of the interest. So what yield is being farmed in crypto? There is transparently none. There are flows, but they are not generated by economically productive assets over time, but rather appear near instantaneously as a result of speculative pricing across non-productive assets. The word speculative is not a denigration. There is nothing wrong with speculative value. But there is something bizarre and circular about discrepancies between different speculations on the potential future value itself forming the basis of profitable arbitrage that is then mislabeled as a yield. Perhaps this is just semantics. Redefine it not as yield, but arbitrage, typical of any market-making activity. Normal market-making itself relies on trading between those who naturally disagree on their assessment of speculative value. But the speculative value of what? Of yields! This is the essence of speculation as opposed to, say, appraisal. Most financial assets are assigned value on the basis of their discounted future cash flows, that is, at least psychologically and philosophically, if not mathematically. Hardly any financial assets of note have no capacity to generate a yield and simply have a value in the moment that a potential buyer believes to be mispriced, at least hardly any with noteworthy capitalization that makes them relevant to broader capital markets activity. Quote, speculation arises from the inability to know the future. Yields take time and skill to generate. No real yield is generated instantaneously by arbitrage, and hence no real financial asset attains value and pricing this way either. At root, financial assets must derive their value from a spot appraisal or from the prospect of future productivity from a stock of carrying capacity generating a yield. Does crypto? No. Curiously, this is the simple part of the answer. Understanding what is happening is often a lot more complicated. The remainder of this section breaks into the following subsections to trace what is quite a complicated line of reasoning. 1. An analysis of how the crypto ecosystem embraces and encourages rehypothecation, leverage, and securitization, liberally borrowed from traditional finance but that don't quite serve any coherent purpose in this environment. 2. How these three collectively contribute to creating systemic fragility, such that in general capital has to keep flowing in to keep the system seeming healthy. And 3 an analysis of how the popular and common metrics worryingly both conceal the fragility analyzed in subsection 1 and encourage the continuation of systemically necessary capital inflows as analyzed in subsections 2 and 3. 1. Rehypothecation, Leverage, and Securitization the first thing we want to highlight is the immense amount of rehypothecation of assets happening in the crypto ecosystem today. What we mean by rehypothecation is quite simple, albeit a little different to traditional finance, hence creating the potential for a great deal of confusion we also hope to dispel. A given asset can be used as, quote, collateral 
in one protocol, contributing to a new asset being minted, and then either itself reused, its collateralized end product reused, or its securitized governance rights reused, all again and again throughout multiple different protocols. It is actually difficult to disentangle these three separate concepts, hence us treating them all at once. Leverage on its own might not be so bad were the rights to the levered end product not dubiously securitized, nor would securitization on its own be cause for concern were the securitization tokens not used as collateral and unboundedly rehypothecated. Let us consider an example of how assets in the crypto ecosystem can be and are rehypothecated. 1. To start, a user takes $1,500 of Ether, deposits it into Maker, and gets $1,000 of the DAI stablecoin in return. This assumes a 150% collateralization ratio, a dubious metric, but it will do for now. 2. The user then deposits the new die, as well as $1,000 of Tether, into the Curve 3 pool and becomes an LP with $2,000 total staked into the pool's liquidity. 3. The user, as an LP, on top of garnering fees, is also granted a CRV token for being an LP. The CRV token was issued by the protocol as a, quote, governance token. The value of the CRV is supposed to derive from voting rights over such matters as enabling access to treasuries or any other fees generated by the protocol. As of today and in most crypto protocols, the quote treasuries of these protocols are actually just these self-created tokens. 4. This CRV token can then be lent out by the user using a lending protocol such as Aave. In Aave, the user can deposit these CRV tokens they received and earn interest on them, or collateralize against them for stablecoins in yet another protocol. 5. Once the stablecoin is generated from the CRV the user just used as collateral, the user is free to reuse these stablecoins to make another round of investments, in theory, now going back to step 2 above. Let us analyze Curve and 3Pool in a little more detail. Curve is an automated market maker that facilitates the transfer of different Ethereum-based assets between users looking to trade. 3Pool is a pool for stablecoins which allows users to exchange DAI, USDC, and USDT and rewards participants with CRV, the Curve token. Liquidity providers in 3Pool Users with balances of stablecoins deposit proportional numbers of DAI, USDC, and USDT to provide liquidity for these exchanges. In return for staking these assets, the liquidity providers are paid back in two different forms. There is a swap fee, which can be thought of as users or takers paying a fee to the liquidity providers, stablecoins in this instance. There is also a staking reward to which liquidity providers are entitled. In exchange for locking up the underlying assets to the Curve protocol, the liquidity providers earn a certain amount of CRV in reward. The size of the transaction fee earned also scales with the amount of value staked. While clearly not advertised as such, it is fair to say that these staking rewards are effectively paid via unbacked seniorage, which the protocol uses to incentivize makers to provide liquidity. 
Next, to touch on the native token to curve. Why this token ought to have a value and how it ought to be used is unclear. The token has a programmatically unlimited supply and a vague value proposition for any investor. The governance to claim on any real cash flows by any definition is unclear, even if defined so loosely as to potentially consist of receipt of other Ethereum-based tokens. On top of this, the only reason anybody would continue to hold their CRV tokens, from a capital allocation perspective, is a mechanism that gives more rewards and trading fees for continued staking. Does that not sound rather convoluted? We are talking about a token whose only evidenced utility and function is to be restaked into the very system that creates it to create more of it. The red herring of, quote, governance rights seems only to entitle the holder to contribute to the governance of this process of creating more of itself and nothing more. This clearly depends on new capital coming into the system to be sustained. But what happens when, one day, people decide they would like to own an alternative asset that actually provides access to real cash flows, or that has some more persistent basis for its spot valuation? Our contention is a bank run cascades the value of CRV down, and with it will crash the value proposition of running liquidity pools. Crypto investors who currently own CRV do seem to largely understand that today much of the governance is unproductive, but hope that in the future the protocol will continue to mature and these tokens will accrue value as derived from their governance rights. Clearly, we are skeptical. Figure 1. Explanation of why CRV has value. But it's got electrolytes. All right, before we dive a little deeper into rehypothecation, leverage, and securitization, let's hit our amazing sponsor, the Fold app. So I said at the beginning of the show that I was switching my bills over to Fold. That is 100% true. There are still like three major bills that have to come from our old bank account for a short while, but we're almost completely moved. But today, after we finally did this shift, my Apple subscriptions hit, got a notification while I was recording, Hit spin, 1.4% sats back. Then my Code Academy subscription hit, landed 2% on that spin, all today. So while I'm recording, I just get notified and a spin and I just win some sats in the middle of the day. This is because of the premium fold debit card. And on top of just having that, I get even more back with major retailers using their gift cards. I get 5% back at Amazon plus a spin with my card. That is more than you get with their credit card, the Amazon credit card. If, of course, you avoid ever paying interest. People forget that the credit card, if you don't pay it off immediately, you're not getting anything back. You're paying interest. But not with Fold. It's a debit card. Get your Fold card at 20% off the annual fee, you lucky bastard, at guyswan.com slash fold. Earn sats back on everything. We use Curve as an example because it simultaneously encapsulates multiple risks we discuss within one subsystem of crypto. Curve enables the trading of Ethereum-based assets for each other, many, possibly all of which, have a market value in the first place 
that is justified via exactly the process we are currently analyzing, in which the underlying assets are referenced either to each other's values or to governance rights over flows of these assets. Presumed to have value, hence the rights are presumed to have value. And as the icing on the cake, Curve created its own such token, the only utility or function of which is to restake into the same system, thus providing yet more pseudo-leverage to the Curve token ecosystem and to crypto as a whole. One further layer to all this is that many other crypto protocols aggregate user funds to help them become liquidity providers in Curve. An example is a protocol called Yearn Finance, which aggregates user funds and deposits it into protocols such as Curve to do the work of automated market making and entitle the original providers of funds to interest, styled as yield, but we know better. Suddenly, we have a crypto protocol, Yearn, that is built to allocate funds to other crypto protocols, Curve in our example, with users earning interest from the fees and once again the Curve token, CRV, but now also the Yearn or YFI token. From a user perspective just looking to garner yield, YFI or Wi-Fi is a brilliant offering. How the yield is generated and what it actually represents, as well as the underlying risks, is what concerns us. Funny enough, there are even other projects that then attach onto Yearn Finance, notably Alchemix, but at this point we think our concerns have been voiced. Let us just say that we see no practical reason this iterative process would ever need to end. In all, what we have seen is how starting with $1,500 of Ethereum and $1,000 of Tether can lead to multiple different steps of assets being created and recycled, either via an implicit form of leverage or an implicit form of securitization. We reuse the word implicit, as these activities are not openly described as either leverage or securitization within the ecosystem yet they seem to be the closest accurate descriptions in terms of traditional financial concepts. Some of the protocols involved, MakerDAO above, take, quote, deposits of sorts and mint new assets, more suggestively credit instruments, determined to have some value as a function of the value of the deposit. This is essentially the role of a bank in creating leverage. Some other of the protocols involved, Curve above, mint new assets, more suggestively securities, on the basis of the value ascribed to control of some or other resource. This is essentially the role of investment banks, or capital markets at large, but this is possibly just semantics, in securitization. It is worth emphasizing that rehypothecation, leverage, or securitization are not necessarily bad things if employed properly and transparently. Our concern is effectively that they are being employed improperly and opaquely, such that systemic risks are created, and which seemingly go entirely unnoticed, or perversely, the effects of which are misunderstood and celebrated. For example, crypto proponents will often cite over-collateralization as a reason to be reassured that things can only go so wrong, 
or that if things go wrong, we can be relatively sure the various structures in place can be unwound safely and the originators of capital made whole. To be clear on terminology before we get into the weeds, by X% percent collateralization, we mean every $100 of synthetic asset is backed by X dollars, i.e. X% percent of $100, of collateral. By Y% percent over collateralized, we mean that a synthetic asset is 100 plus Y% percent collateralized. We will try to stick to the former to avoid confusion unless it cannot be helped. The idea that over-collateralization grants safety might be nice were it not for a naive arithmetic glitch in the reasoning just presented. Only 200% collateralization or greater can achieve this systemically. For any lower ratio, there will be some number of iterations of rehypothecating collateral such that the value outstanding X initial collateral is greater than the initial collateral. Let's use the simple example of 150% to demonstrate. $150 of actual dollars is required as collateral to issue $100 of stable Alice coin, and likewise to issue $100 of stable Bob coin. If we take our $100 of stable Alice coin and pledge it as 150% over collateralization to issue $67 of stable Bob coin, our gross synthetic exposure is already $167 on only $150 of real collateral. In fact, we can keep on iterating this, pledging stable Bob coin to issue more stable Alice coin and back and forth indefinitely, and approach a limit of $300 aggregate synthetic value. 175% collateralization would take three iterations and only approaches a limit of $233. 200% will never be overtaken by synthetic value in excess of the collateral, and the limit of unboundedly many rehypothecations approaches $200. Appendix B elucidates the algebra from which all numbers presented in this discussion pop out. What all this demonstrates beyond any individual example is that the idea of over-collateralization means something very different in isolation on the one hand, and in an environment in which assets can be endlessly rehypothecated on the other. Mini Legos, one might say. What we arrive at is really pseudo-leverage. Nobody thinks of themselves as having put capital at meaningful risk because everything is over-collateralized. And yet the ecosystem as a whole is undercapitalized. Far from enabling greater transparency, security, and so on, this connectedness of potentially individually robust elements perversely creates systemic vulnerability. This may seem oddly familiar to fractional reserve banking, with the algebra causing deja vu to boot. What we have termed the percentage of over-collateralization could equally be thought of as the reserve ratio, should the reader wish to translate all the algebra for themselves. But of course, there are numerous drastic differences. The very fact the comparison can be made and that the algebra translates ought to set off alarm bells. We see three obvious issues here, although of course, there may be more. First, fractional reserve deposits are not collateral, but rather are savers' funds lent at risk and put to productive ends. 
the end in crypto is not as of today productive, but is rather a continued and seemingly endless recombination of the instruments. The purpose of real collateral is precisely that it is not rehypothecated, but is used to guarantee the value of a securitized debt contract, given the obvious possibility that the loan itself will fail on account of some real-world economic enterprise failing. In crypto, none of these financial primitives are present, making it entirely unclear what the purpose of collateral is in the first place, or perhaps more harshly, if the concept of collateral even applies. Secondly, the purpose of the reserve ratio in fractional reserve banking is to provide the liquidity of an equity buffer to manage the risk of maturity mismatch. It is not an entirely arbitrary leftover of recombinatory rehypothecation. Again, quote, maturity mismatch is, in the first place, a product of the real economic activity that fractional reserve banking is intended to facilitate. Liquid reserves have a maturity of effectively zero and a definite value, whereas illiquid economic projects requiring debt finance have longer dated maturity and indeterminate value, pending real-world economic uncertainty. Given the lack of these primitives, it is unclear what the purpose is of the similar construction. And lastly, in fractional reserve banking, there is a lender of last resort in the form of a central bank. Not only is this a bad thing and not worth copying, it is what Bitcoin fixes. It isn't even really possible to mimic in this environment in the first place. As a result, the role is taken up by pseudo-equity issuance to boost the equity buffer that also doesn't quite make sense here. This is accomplished in the form of additional, essentially centralized, securitization and additional primary capital from investors. 2. Systemic Fragility Given how much of the ecosystem is collateralized by Ether and other similar assets, some of which themselves generate new tokens, and given there is no clear link to stocks of economically productive assets, despite the prevalent securitization, underlying cash flows is not what has been securitized to date. There is a need for real external capital to act as the backstop of value. Taking into account the expected return this capital seeks, there is arguably also a need for continual new capital. Crypto has seen major drawdowns, but the bleeding has always been stopped by fresh capital being injected into the system. We suspect this has been largely due to the cheap capital environment across the world, and perfectly ironically, the depression of real yields across alternative allocations, but we will cover this in more detail in section 4. After all, if you buy into the investment hypothesis anyway, then a 40 plus percent drawdown in 24 hours, as Ether for example experienced in March 2020, surely seems like an excellent opportunity to buy on price weakness. Below, we will speculate as to what might follow a similarly dramatic drawdown in the price of Ether, today or in the short to medium term future, and what this might mean for the health and wealth of the ecosystem at large. We should stress up front that what follows is in no way scientific, nor is it a prediction we insist is predetermined. 
we readily admit the obvious criticism that this is merely speculation. This is true. Indeed, we contemplated including a historical analysis instead, but found, obviously on reflection, that no period and no data suffice given what we are speculating about here has never happened to date. What interests us is that the thought experiment provides a means of better appreciating the extent of what we believe to be the systemic fragility caused by the not widely appreciated combinations of rehypothecation, leverage, and securitization described in the subsection above. What would likely follow a large enough crash in the price of Ether is that protocols like Curve and others require more collateral to be put up or for loans to automatically close. Once this process starts, Curve tokens, which could be collateralized elsewhere, would likely begin to lose value. As this bleeding would play out, it is natural, and matches with the young history of the space, to expect some forced selling by market participants who otherwise believed their collateralized positions were relatively secure. With this forced selling of CRV and other tokens, we would expect to see total value locked, and many other metrics used to describe the value of the networks begin to drop precipitously. This in turn would undermine the perceived value of the networks as well as the actual value of assets previously contributed, leading to anything for which their securitized governance tokens were used as collateral to also be subject to various liquidations and collateral calls. As these liquidations and collateral calls rippled through the ecosystem, there would only be two ways the bleeding could end. Either nearly all of the leverage in the system would need to be wiped out, which of course would be a catastrophic decline in aggregate value, particularly so given our outline above of just how much pseudo-leverage can exist globally without anybody being locally aware. The alternative option is simply that more capital flows into these assets than the forced selling via the liquidations. The practicalities of new capital flowing in is worth pondering also. It is possible that this would simply take the form of buying pressure to counteract forced selling pressure. But it is also possible that the buys would be of newly minted assets, hence recycling the liquidity unlocked by collapsing leverage immediately into new leverage. This would have a naturally magnified effect on the valuation metrics cited, and shortly to be criticized in subsection 3, and may help push back against an equally collapsing narrative, should that be a contributing factor. In one sense, this is all straightforwardly understood as a spiral of debt collapse. If this were all, it would be fair to dismiss our analysis thus far as uninteresting fear-mongering, given that clearly any debt can default, and any leveraged financial system therefore bears risk. But this is not our point. It is not interesting that the debt could collapse, but how it could collapse, and what such a collapse might reveal about its mechanics all along. There are two factors that are perhaps discordant in this scenario, and that the reader may have noticed. One, what the backstop really is, given what the value really is. And two, how seemingly irrelevant the cause of the collapse is to its consequences. While Tolstoy knew well that every unhappy debt collapse was unhappy in its own way, what normal deleveragings at least have in common 
is that expectations of future profitability, i.e. real yield, were realized to have been overly optimistic and are adjusted downwards. The adjustment means both the financing costs and fragility of the capital structure erected in more optimistic times can no longer be sustained. But in this case, there is no real yield in the first place, so this can be neither the trigger nor the backstop. To tick off one above, then, the value here is conceptualized by all involved to be the complexity of rehypothecation, leverage, and securitization created. What is boasting about the creation of, quote, money Legos, if not a celebration of this complexity, regardless of what the complexity either represents or achieves on fundamentals? The backstop clearly cannot be that the underlying real value arrives at a more appropriate capital structure once enough debt it could not previously sustain has been washed out because, here, the debt is the value. When the debt collapses, so does the value proposition. Crypto, entirely perversely, is most conceptually sustainable the more debt there is, which is clearly at odds with its financial stability and, to our minds, has no resolution. Which all means, of course, that the backstop is fresh external capital. It has always been fresh external capital, and it probably always will be. As for two, the trigger, the reader will recall, is simply prices falling. If the price in question were a securitization of rights to the product of all this leverage, the mechanics might seem comparable, but by far the most likely trigger is a fall in the price of Ether. And if this is not a specific trigger, it is likely at the front of the queue of consequences, and hence will quickly become a compounding trigger. But what is Ether itself? Why does it have value? This is the root of what we deem to be a severe philosophical discordance. Ether is allegedly the right to claim decentralized computation. To make the link more obvious, it is the right to run a crypto application. Its price is surely a reflection of how much running a crypto application is worth, somewhat tautologically. To force the conceptual link to section 1, then, this has value because the decentralized computational resource that contributes to creating the Ethereum time chain is itself scarce. Hence, this right ought to have a market clearing price. Surely, this is something of an operating expense in the scheme of things. Or at least, surely, it ought to be. What should this have to do with the solvency of the decentralized financial enterprise on which it runs? A strict analogy here would be something like a bank that not only has an office and an electricity bill, but which also decides to index its leverage ratio to the price it is paying for wholesale electricity or on its rent. And just to rub it in, the analogy demands we rule out the one way this might make some economic sense. We are not postulating that the link comes about because rent is a high component of the bank's costs. Hence, with profit margins contracting, it is prudent for the bank to prune its own risk. 
In fact, the exact opposite. Costs going up are a good thing, and costs going down are a bad thing. Hence, a borrower could receive a margin call, not because of anything to do with financing, her own or even the bank's, but solely because the bank's bills went down. The perverse justification might be something like, the bank only needs to make so much profit, so with more profit now expected, some outstanding loans can be cancelled. The reasoning we are forced to follow in this analogy is clearly absurd. But what about the base case that we are using the analogy to try to elucidate? Is it absurd too? To be frank, we think that yes, it is. This is the paradoxical core of all the securitized values, pointing at something else and at each other in the absence of real economic productivity. The financial health of the ecosystem depends on the price of an asset that can only conceivably have value as a proxy for enthusiasm about the ecosystem, given it is a cost that all must pay to participate. But is this really to say anything more than the value depends on everybody thinking it ought to have value? We do not think it is. Bitcoin arguably fits this description too, but we explained in section 1 that there is a very good reason for people to believe this in the first place. Or rather, there is a good reason for people to believe other people will believe Bitcoin has value. Crypto appears not to have this philosophical buttress, and as such, we believe that crypto is incredibly systemically fragile. What if people stop thinking this? What does this perverse mechanism of justifying value churn out at that point? Is there any reason not to expect an eventual catastrophic crash, except precisely as perpetually staved off by fresh capital, as repeatedly alluded to above? New investors daring enough to buy during the bad times would be forced to take a harder look at what value they are actually buying into. As much of this piece has touched on, we think when investors cannot simply ride the coattails of high beta, the value they will see in these assets during this time will be far lower than what is being perceived today. This scenario does not necessarily imply the end of crypto, but instead a reset of expectations and beliefs that will bring to the surface important questions about how the ecosystem is structured. It will be fascinating to see those passionate about crypto cast their arguments during such times. Those that will still have conviction during and after a mass liquidation event across the ecosystem are best to be at least listened to and debated, as they are likely the most thoughtful around. For what it is worth, and to foreshadow section 5, our prediction is that at such a time, activity will move to the then more mature higher layers of Bitcoin. This is once again because it is not the concept of decentralized finance that we believe is at fault, just this instantiation. This instantiation might be thought of as using the fact of not having yet defaulted as the toxically self-referential basis for leverage rather than real cash flows, real productivity, and a real grounding of value. 3. Misleading Metrics 
The reader may be aware that, despite our concerns, such headline numbers as market capitalization and total value locked continue to rise, seemingly indicating ever-growing health and utility of the ecosystem. Is this not contrary to our rhetorical framing that crypto is not finance? It seems to be getting more and more financial. Unfortunately, we believe these metrics are deeply misleading, and we would argue further that the precise way in which they are misleading is insidiously what contributed to attracting more fresh capital in the first place. As above, this capital is then rehypothecated, levered, securitized, misleadingly quantified after all this to look wildly more successful than before, and the cycle begins once again. Our thesis on, quote, crypto valuation, as briefly as possible, is that none of it makes sense. Similarly to what we will discuss in section 4, it involves a grave category error that originates in thoughtlessly transferring methodologies from one area of finance to another, without having given the requisite thought to the fundamentals of the methodology in the original environment. This leads to failing to understand what the methodologies mean and why they mean that where they do apply, and subsequently misapplying them where they very much do not apply. Evidencing this abstract objection, we have two specific critiques. One, double-counting leverage and rehypothecation in total value locked, and two, misusing market capitalization. The first is easier to grasp and nicely communicable, and we borrow an example from Lucas Nutzi, Anthony DeCalvez, and Kyle Waters' recent Coinmetrics blog post, Understanding Total Value Locked, the building blocks of which are very much like our own above, albeit more typical and less complex for the sake of making a point. Quote, Take a look at the following example. A user deposits $1,500 worth of wrapped ether into Maker to get a loan in the form of $1,000 worth of DAI, 150% collateralization ratio. The user then deposits this newly minted DAI, as well as another $1,000 worth of USDC, in the Uniswap V2 USDC DAI pool. In return, the user gets Liquidity Provider, or LP tokens, representing that $2,000 stake of that pool's liquidity. The user can then redeposit these LP tokens into Maker to get another loan of $1,960 of DAI, 102% collateralization ratio. From a naive perspective, TVL could be computed as Wrapped Ether backing the original loan, $1,500. Liquidity added to Uniswap V2 in USDC, $1,000. Liquidity added to Uniswap V2 in DAI, $1,000. And Uniswap DAI USDC LP tokens backing the new loan, $2,000. Total value locked, $5,500. Yet, a more sophisticated approach would only count the $1,500 of wrapped Ether and $1,000 of USDC as the real collateral, giving a total value locked of $2,500. This approach would not include assets that are claims to other collateral, such as DAI, which is minted as a loan against collateral, and 
Uniswap DAI USDC LP tokens, which represent a claim to the liquidity held by the Uniswap DAI USDC pair. Above, we articulated the prospect of rehypothecated collateral as presenting a systemic risk. Here, it is clear it also lends itself to misleading quantification of value in the ecosystem. This contributes to a narrative that serves to attract more capital, making this initial problem worse still. The second objection we have is the importance of the subtle misuse of market cap. Market capitalization in equities means the price of one share multiplied by the number of shares outstanding. Although often used as a proxy for how big a company is, it has a precise practical meaning. It is a measure of the total capital required to purchase a company outright based on the price at which these shares are trading currently. Usually, when one company buys another, it offers a premium above the closing price of trading, say 20% or 30%, on the assumption that the majority of voting shareholders will be happy with that instantaneous gain on their investment. That is how sellers conceive of the price of their sale. But the buyers have to buy all the shares. Hence, market capitalization has an intrinsic relevance and meaning. Similarly, if a company issues new equity, it will presumably be for the purpose of financing some real-world project, possibly buying a company. And hence, a 5% issuance, for example, has intrinsic relevance in terms of the dollar amount that allows the company to raise. This is why market cap is meaningful above and beyond mere price. There is no reason to refer to market cap rather than just price. And not only is there no reason to, it is arguably actively misleading. Even in regular equities, it is potentially misleading because it is an extrapolation based only on the price realized by those willing and able to trade. It reflects the clearing price of the last trade, which may or may not be the clearing price for all shares. It is most often a reasonable extrapolation because in liquid enough markets, it is true, almost by definition, that everybody is willing and able to trade. Hence, if the price really were unfair, or for some reason not reflective of what investors thought the company as a whole ought to be worth, they would act on this intuition and move the market. The reason corporate buyouts are attempted at a premium is precisely to account for the portion of holders who are not trading, and hence who cannot be extrapolated over. They aren't willing to sell at the market price, otherwise they would have sold, given the market is liquid enough. But at 20% higher, they surely mostly would? Or 30%? The entire point of these negotiations is because the extrapolation has a relevant meaning. But in crypto, and arguably all of crypto, the extrapolation is misleading because you cannot buy the whole thing. And so what if the market cap is based on the active, willing, and able trading of 1% of the token supply, or 0.1%, or less? Can that really mean that there is $10 billion of value, quote, in the ecosystem? We doubt it. If Alice sells Bob one one trillionth of her pen for one dollar, 
that does not make Alice a trillionaire. And that is not to mention the compounding effect of leverage, rehypothecation, and securitization tied up in such metrics as total value locked prior to this point. We believe that generally, market caps should be viewed with hesitancy in the space broadly, and this is not necessarily crypto-specific. Financial professionals ought to be just as careful with the idea of Bitcoin having a market cap. But in light of the double counting just alluded to, in addition to this theoretical flaw, it should perhaps be viewed even more suspiciously here. This might be little more than a curiosity, or perhaps even us cherry-picking criticisms, were it not for the fact that these numbers are frequently touted as capturing the ecosystem's growth, health, and to some extent, success. This in turn attracts the initial capital that we argue is probably necessary to avoid collapse. We will go into much more detail in section 4 as to the attitudes of institutional investors from their point of view. What we present above is more from the perspective of the ecosystem. Why does the ecosystem need investors? The reader would do well to remember when she gets to section 4 that these two perspectives seem to have little to do with one another. Subsection 4. This is not finance. We want to be clear once again that our purpose in this section is neither to holistically capture the crypto ecosystem nor to cherry-pick flaws for the sake of it, but rather to draw attention to the many facets and many consequences of one single dire flaw that this is not real finance. Its foundation is fundamentally economically suspect, as it can be rooted in neither spot appraisals nor yields. There can be no spot appraisals akin to Bitcoin because the key innovation that allows Bitcoin to realize emergent and endogenous value has been removed in the process of creating these assets. There can be no yields because the returns being generated and oft-cited derive from leverage, rehypothecation, and securitization, not links to productive capital. What value undeniably exists is the derivative of primary capital that is deployed only back into more complex manipulations of itself, not intermediated to real investment, and hence, not finance. A financial ecosystem built on products with value propositions, and in these stablecoin cases, actual values, that are not a reference to stocks of productive capital and the flows they generate, but rather point back and forth to each other, cannot be justified as some kind of brilliant new design. It is just leverage on leverage, rehypothecation on rehypothecation, and securitization on securitization. Sometimes the leveraged assets are rehypothecated, and sometimes the rehypothecated assets are leveraged. Sometimes the claims to products of leveraged and rehypothecated assets are securitized, and sometimes the securitizations are used as collateral for more leverage. But this obscurantist complexity is a bug, not a feature. This is compounded by the fact that the real-world value backing any of these assets, even the initial collateral, is itself unclear. 
Lynn Alden captured this well in her excellent piece, An Economic Analysis of Ethereum, which we highly recommend in addition to our own. Similarly observing that there does seem to be a lot of, quote, financial activity on Ethereum. Specifically, it's what you would build if you were trying to replicate finance just by looking at it, but not really understanding what the point of it all was. Quote, Ethereum is heavily used for decentralized exchanges of crypto tokens, crypto stablecoins that serve as liquid units of account for trading crypto tokens, and lending and earning interest on crypto tokens, which is a practice that serves as a liquidity or borrowing source for traders of crypto tokens. To a lesser extent, it is also used for gamified ways to earn or trade various crypto tokens. So it's a big operating system powered by crypto tokens for the purpose of moving around crypto tokens. A healthy banking system in the real world would consist of people depositing money and the banks making various loans for mortgages and for business financing to generate real-world utility. A speculation-based banking system, on the other hand, would consist of a bunch of banks taking deposit money and then lending to speculators in the nearby stock market, along with technology providers that make this easier, and then what those speculators are trading mostly consists of shares of those banks, shares of those tech companies, and shares of the stock exchange, resulting in a big circular speculative party. The biggest use case so far for Ethereum is a decentralized version of that circular speculation-based system. Our only disagreement is that Ethereum is not properly decentralized, but we covered that already. The reader might wonder if all of this criticism might not equally apply to Bitcoin. There are multiple parts to this answer, some of which we have implicitly addressed already and some of which we will address later in this piece. The simplest retort would be that the base layer of Bitcoin is only trying to be money and nothing else. We will explain in much more detail in section 5 that we anticipate similar quote, crypto tools and ecosystems will come to exist on Bitcoin, but that precisely this grounding in real value is what will make them more secure. We might go even further, and in doing so, further buttress our philosophical defense of the innovation of proof-of-work, the difficulty adjustment, and the truly distributed consensus they enable, by arguing that, quote, money is an endogenous and emergent use case of the Bitcoin time chain, and that actually, this emergent value is ultimately dependent on whether users are happy enough with the security expense to continue paying it. This, of course, gives us our real-world value link. Censorship-resistant, integrity-assured, floating value, native to a distributed ledger, is well worth paying for with time and energy. Hence, people do. In Bitcoin, everything ultimately points to proof-of-work. If attempting to follow the real-life analysis and explanation above unfortunately proved too confusing, we can alternatively model a hypothetical altcoin valuation mathematically as follows. Let n be a natural number denoting discrete steps of time in the model. Then let i, j, and k be natural numbers referring to crypto tokens, which index both DFI of N and VCJ of N as follows. 
df sub i of n refers to a valuation of crypto i token at time step n as facilitated by a primary equity raise to support the asset price in the open market. VC sub J of N refers to the flow of capital to the venture capitalist, either primary or secondary, and either positive or negative, based on whether capital is being injected into the market or removed from the market as a, quote, return, respectively. Keeping in mind that much of crypto valuations are justified on the basis of value locked in other crypto assets that they nominally either custody and rehypothecate or over which they claim some governance rights, i.e. of which they are securitizations. Consider the following not entirely serious model. What follows this is a set of equations around token creation, valuation, and capital flows that I will not be trying to make sense of, but that suggest that over some period of time in, the VC initial rate of return in an arbitrary token is possibly around 1 bajillion percent. Figure 2. Cartman LARPing as a crypto VC. Four-point plan. One, startup. 2. Cash in. 3. Sell out. 4. Bro down. As a final metaphor that is easier to understand than a barrage of quasi-satirical mathematical logic, and which we think is still accurate enough as far as it goes, and hopefully helpful, consider the following model of crypto funding. Venture capitalists build a Jenga tower, contributing 100 Jenga blocks. They are invested to the tune of 100. Then we get into an iterative game in which the VCs take one block from wherever they like, while retail adds two exclusively to the top of the tower. By the time the VCs have taken, say, 20 blocks from throughout the structure, they have a paper return of 20%. Of course, it is paper only because, unlike a real yield from a real asset, there is absolutely no reason to believe the par value of the principle is assured. Eventually, when the returns are impressive enough to justify it, VCs raise much more primary capital, which this time does go to the bottom to buttress the structure. This means the game can go on for longer, but it doesn't really do much more than that. The point of Jenga is to not be the one who collapses the tower because it will eventually collapse. At the risk of yet more mixed metaphors, this is all rather like a game of musical chairs. There mathematically is not enough for everybody to make whole, never mind make a return. But as long as the music is still playing, nobody seems to care. We cannot help but feel that the crypto game, as of today, is ever so slightly more complicated. To recoup a non-paper return by extracting more Jenga blocks than you contributed, before eventually the music stops and the tower collapses. To be clear, none of these towers have collapsed in the way that we are alluding to now, but we suspect that this is because capital has continued to flow in, and that if or when this stops, collapses are likely to follow. While some of this may come across as unserious, 
We have done our best to be accurate such that the reader is getting a sense of the typical construction in the space. The value involved is clearly speculative. Even proponents would surely not deny this. But there appears to have been curiously little thought put towards why speculative value ever comes about in the first place. In this case, what is being speculated on is that something will cease to be speculative and become real. The problem is that these are the same thing. It is a speculation that this speculation will stop being speculative. Without the tie to real-world assets and simply having fresh capital flowing in as a backstop, we will remain seriously concerned about the true health of this ecosystem. And of course, as we discussed in Section 2, any tie to real-world assets we strongly suspect is an unacceptably risky and borderline pointlessly expensive misuse of this technology over what can be achieved with regular computational tools. We can push this even further in tying the discussion back to Sections 1 and 2, and setting up the link to section 4. We believe the speculation is tied up in yet another vicious circle. The assets themselves need to be expensive in order to thwart attack by raising the escrow stake and the dishonesty penalty for a would-be attacker. They need to do something productive in order to justify their expense beyond mere speculation. Or, as above, the speculation must be based on the reasonable assumption of one day doing something productive. But they also need a near enough guarantee they will thwart any attack in order to be reasonably speculated upon as likely one day to do something. Bitcoin must also prove its resilience to this cycle. But for Bitcoin, the argument is not only straightforward, but fundamental to understanding the only thing it does and does well. What it does is provide an appraisable spot value, not a yield, as censorship-resistant, integrity-assured, floating value native to a distributed ledger. Therefore, expense is justified. Therefore, attack is thwarted. Therefore, there is good reason to speculate on future floating value. In Bitcoin's case, it is really more of a virtuous cycle. In virtue of the genius of proof-of-work, the difficulty adjustment, and the censorship-resistant and integrity-assured distributed consensus they enable. If crypto is likely not resistant because it is not decentralized, and not productive because of financialization rather than finance, then what is the basis of the speculation propping it up? In section 4, we attempt to address this. Surely these speculators do not conceive of their capital allocation as speculation that this speculation will stop being speculative. So what do they think? What is the investment rationale? Rounded corners, sleek black design, minimalism personified. The Bitbox O2 hardware wallet will fit right into your pocket and other convenient places where one may need to securely hold large amounts of Bitcoin wealth. But the Bitbox O2 is how you keep it safe.
it's easy to set up, which matters. If your security protocol is so complicated that you make a mistake, or the device is just so frustrating to set up that you never actually do it, it doesn't secure anything, does it? I didn't think so either. The BitBox is right in the sweet spot. Between easy to use for those new to Bitcoin and with advanced functionality for the long-time Bitcoiner. With no physical buttons, it actually senses where your fingers are. And you can flip the screen to the top or the bottom and it works both sides. You know you want to touch it. Grab yourself a BitBox with 5% off at guyswan.com bitbox and use code GUY to touch your BitBox hardware wallet. Now let's get back into the read. Part 4. The Investment Rationale More succinct advice to those who must time markets comes from remarks attributed to a 19th century cotton trader. Some think it will go up, some think it will go down. I do too. Whatever you do will be wrong. Act at once. David Swenson on Crypto Too long, didn't read. In section 4, we provide a rationale for investing in the space to date and argued that the most sensible investment thesis is a subtle category error that results in transferring across principles from software venture investing that do not quite apply in this space. We argue further that only a certain class of investors is likely to commit this error, and the realization that others will not follow will likely mark the beginning of the end. Jump to section 5 for the argument that precisely the desirable features of crypto will likely emerge before too long on Bitcoin. This is not a psychologization or pathologization of crypto proponents. The quote investment rationale is a category error that arises from misapplying the traditional venture capital methodology in an area similar enough to seem familiar natural and possibly even identical, but just different enough to be deeply philosophically questionable. We will get to this later on, but of course we could be wrong. Perhaps we ourselves suffer from a pathology of maximalism toward the likes of sound money, layered architecture, provable technical robustness, long-termism, and capital formation that blinds us to what is nonetheless worthwhile innovation and an abhorrence of mainstream cantillionaire finance, leading to a preference of prospects for its replacement rather than its being made even more digital, short-termist, and, quote, efficient. It is without a doubt the case that many intelligent people dedicate their time to crypto and will disagree. Their rebuttals are welcome, and we hope this piece will prompt them in good faith. To set the stage for an analysis of what we believe is the category error, the following is a summary of the methodology and rationale for investing in the equity of ultra-high-growth, early-stage software companies. Software has a unique economic characteristic of being unboundedly reproducible at near-zero marginal cost. Companies producing and looking to profit from proprietary software are amongst the most inherently operationally leveraged in the history of industrial capitalism. 
This creates strategic priorities for early-stage software investors that the best venture capitalists figured out a long time ago, and that might look crazy from a traditional capital allocation and business development perspective without having realized these fundamental economic differences. Software businesses typically have enormous addressable markets, at least in principle. Even the most niche application imaginable. Let's say software as a service for software as a service companies serving industry niche X to manage their industry niche X software as a service subscriptions. Can theoretically address every such use case in the entire world from day one given that the customer requires only an internet connection and payment to the merchant requires only the kind of infrastructure offered by Stripe, Adian, Square, PayPal, etc. that is nowadays ubiquitous. Moving to a new jurisdiction or even a new country may require next to no operational infrastructure. Without meaning to sound flippant, there is likely already software as a service for that. It is just another operating expense. Therefore, it makes imminent financial sense to grow as fast as can be done without incurring the risks of truly excessive operational or potentially financial leverage as brought about by growth strains, runaway costs, no profitability, cultural dilution, and so on. This is often misunderstood as requiring or even indicating network effects. This can be true, but it is unnecessary and only peripherally related to this analysis. The presence of potential network effects in a product or service simply makes this issue all the more pressing, but they are not necessary. What matters is that this economic profile heightens competitive pressures to levels unimaginable in any, quote, normal industry. In other words, one without the bizarre and relatively novel underlying economic profile. As a software startup, you have to capture the market as fast as possible for purely game-theoretic reasons. If you don't, somebody else will. Perhaps more importantly, everybody else can. One can't point to the return on capital implicit in your unit economics and say, but it's unsustainable to try to grow faster than that. Wrong. What's unsustainable is losing the race to win the market and going out of business entirely. What's sustainable is to cover operating losses brought about by rapid growth with financing until the market is all but won. It is sensible to treat all this as effectively R&D, although impossible under accruals accounting standards developed a good 60 years or so before software as we know it today existed. Some of it may be actual R&D, in other words, in technology, but in spirit, it is R&D into company design. The company is running profitless experiments aimed at discovering what it ought to one day look like when profitable. There is a final added wrinkle. Even this may not be sustainable for an individual company. Early stage software companies in isolation are amongst the riskiest, and most uncertain investments that can be made. But those that succeed are amongst the best investments that can be made. This is why venture capitalists have portfolios, not because there are lots of good investments out there. The single best portfolio is the single best investment. But nobody knows what the best investment is going to be. 
and VCs have a fiduciary responsibility to their LPs, who don't care about the success of individual companies, but about the return on their entirely impersonal and illiquid investment. VCs offer a service to their institutional clients that may be roughly described as returns both above and uncorrelated with equity and bond market indices, the hoped-for premium of which is worth the comparative and required illiquidity. There is a fascinating debate to be had about the optimal VC portfolio size, given too wide a spread dilutes the impact of outliers, but too narrow a spread risks missing winners entirely. Regardless, the minimal cutoff advocated for by any sane VC is certainly above one. The minimum the authors can recall seeing justified in terms of this debate is around 12 to 15, and the maximum is effectively unbounded as it becomes more a question of operational bandwidth than purely financial reasoning. Going into such detail on the financing logic is necessary as it affects the operational logic. VC software equity investing is only justified on the basis of its contribution to portfolio-level return on capital. This aggregate return dynamic is in turn predicated on the realization that most will go to zero, but portfolio returns may still be good overall based on one or two dramatic outliers. Hence, there is no point in an individual company trying to be merely good. Everybody must endeavor to be great. Few will succeed, most will be awful, and the average will wash out as good, which was the point all along. This operational logic wraps back around to affect financing logic also, slightly rephrasing the description of early-stage software businesses for optimal suggestiveness what it means to cover operating losses brought about by rapid growth with financing until the market is all but one, is to willingly sacrifice the ability to generate a yield for a rationale that might seem crazy at the level of an individual company, but makes perfect sense at the level of a portfolio, so as to maximize the potential yield the individual company might one day be able to generate. The financing provided is an investment in developing the economic carrying capacity of the firm. It clearly takes time. Creation of real productive capital always does. It is speculative, but it is obviously sensible, healthy, and an enormous positive sum for the world at large. Venture capital is financial engineering to funnel low-risk savings to extremely high-risk investment projects. The net and aggregated capital creation is nothing short of phenomenal. But this does not apply in crypto. Even worse, all of it seems like it applies if you haven't really thought it through. To start with, we do not think there is a likely final, profitable, sustainable, yielding state to be aspired to as was exhaustively described in Section 2. We think there is also no realistic prospect of this ever existing, as explained in Section 3. This might be countered as follows. Sure, it's a low probability of success and many will fail, but this is innovative R&D, 
so it makes sense to diversify across a portfolio in the interest of long-term ecosystem support. We are building alternative financial infrastructure that, once proven, can be plugged into the real economy. But in the meantime, the only way to test the underlying theses is to provide upfront liquidity and see what sticks. No, 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 and no. Given our concerns, we put it out to the reader that the probability of success is very, very low. We cannot claim to know for sure, but we suspect all will fail for fundamental philosophical, technical, and economic reasons on a long enough time horizon. It's not the kind of R&D that is rational in these circumstances. It is purely technological R&D, which may be perfectly commendable out of context, but this context is crucially not one of charity. Very little of this R&D is going towards the all-important discovery of what a profitable end state might look like. So the funds will eventually run dry once fresh external capital no longer enters, and the R&D will, by necessity, cease. It doesn't make sense to diversify, because the point of diversification is not that there are lots of interesting opportunities, but to try to wrestle the space of portfolio-level returns to something more manageable than wild uncertainty, and in doing so to satisfy fiduciary responsibilities to LPs. This logic in early-stage software businesses depends on small probabilities of enormous payoffs. But as just covered, we believe the probabilities here are effectively zero, so this logic falls apart. Applying this thinking to crypto is not long-termist. It is frankly much more similar to blowing up a bubble. Of course, long-termism can certainly be speculative. The financial engineering of real venture capital, as just analyzed, is amongst the most long-termist enterprises in contemporary finance. Given the time periods over which transiently unprofitable and potentially never-to-be-profitable projects must be patiently supported, and which would probably never otherwise come into existence. But this is all predicated on the creation of economic carrying capacity and the potential for a yield one day. In crypto, the speculation seems to us to be entirely self-referential, and so the narrative has become alarmingly short-termist. The narratives seem to constantly change, and yet immediately be very well publicized around buzzwords nobody has ever previously heard of. The desired impression seems to be of innovation that is spiraling out of control, even though nobody seems bothered by the fact that the buzzwords and narratives from two such cycles ago came to precisely nothing. Figure 3 shows the search engine statistics of fads in crypto marketing over time showing the varied spikes in the terms DAO, blockchain, tokens, ICOs, and NFTs over the past few years. This affects financing at both ends. It generates retail interest, such that secondary trading drives up mark-to-market prices and validates, quote, returns. And then those returns are used to justify raising more primary capital from FOMOing liquidity providers. We say returns in quotations rather than returns because none of this is real. There is no yield currently, and we see no path to a yield either. 
which is why, finally, it won't ever be plugged into the real economy, either transparently or at scale. Real institutional capital allocators have an entirely different kind of responsibility towards their clients than the VCs currently engaged in this space. The speculative element currently is an investment risk, not an operational risk. The reader might be tempted to argue that the whole point of decentralized finance is that we no longer need institutions because they are being automated away. This might sound nice, but it is pure fantasy. As per Section 2, retail is only involved with secondary trading driving mark-to-market valuation hikes. 99% of the primary capital is institutional because these secondary trades are providing it with incredible paper returns. The secondary trades, hence the returns, depend on liquidity, and liquidity depends on permanence, in a way that is so obvious to never usually need to be spelled out like this. If market participants know a security is worth zero, then liquidity will only continue to exist so long as there is belief in a greater fool to sell to. In this case, that greater fool is retail. Or put another way, we must not mistake market liquidity and market depth. Perfectly deep markets are liquid right up until everybody wants to sell. This upfront liquidity is highly ill-advised because it is facilitating only more transient liquidity. A massive amount of capital and a large number of investors are involved, not for anything like the reasons outlined above, but simply because this liquidity transiently exists and seems like a worthwhile way to, quote, diversify capital at the portfolio level. To stress the dire state of transparency and liquidity in this ecosystem even further, we also happen to know of large volumes of SME loans currently being used as collateral tranches for stablecoins, which we are fairly certain is not well understood by either side of this transaction. This is why we say transparently in quotations above. There is a connection to the real economy here, but it is not transparent in the slightest. Crypto is serving as an extension of shadow banking. These are unregulated euro dollars in all but name. This is to highlight yet another risk and to be clear on what is meant by, quote, links to the real economy. We do not believe these count towards the loftier goal of links to the real economy because they are really yet another form of ignorant and desperate yield chasing and comfort in diversified liquidity, regardless of solvency on either side of the trade. Next, it is worth briefly drawing attention to the incentives of current market participants. The incentives of retail and institutional end clients deploying capital in this space is chasing yield. Because every other asset class is inflated beyond all reason by central bank intervention in financial markets, but this is not how VCs are paid. Their skin in the game is not a stock, but the promise of skimming flows of this stock. They benefit directly from however long they can continue to deliver returns on which they are entitled to skim 2 and 20, 
and only indirectly from the solvency of the paid-in capital. If the paid-in capital looks solvent, the skimming continues. It doesn't really matter whether or not it is solvent. This might seem harsh, but we can testify to the existence of novel services industries sprouting and skimming non-yield flows from this capital-consumptive space, even beyond the relatively more tangential anecdotes above. In recently speaking to management of a public company considering, quote, launching a blockchain, being as vague as possible so as to keep them effectively anonymous, we were informed that the marketing strategy was to hire a PR firm to manage a worldwide network of, quote, YouTube, TikTok, Clubhouse, and Twitter crypto influencers to encourage retail investors to, quote, support the token price upon launch. This is a shadow industry. It's not entirely unlike intermediary subprime mortgage boosters in our view. It is certainly at least as questionably legal. Given this is a philosophical, technical, and economic analysis, this should not be misunderstood as agitating for prosecution for unregistered securities issuance or promotion, or regulatory intervention of any kind. Our point is simply that, regardless of whether or not this should happen, it will. Given crypto projects are almost all de facto centralized to a greater or lesser extent, as explained in Section 2, such prosecution would likely work. When Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway said the following in their introduction to interviewing Alice Colleen on their Odd Lots podcast, we couldn't help but chuckle. But I feel like, in some sense, some of the narrative enthusiasm has moved away from Bitcoin, at least feels like it in the last few months. Oh, absolutely. I mean, part of this, I think part of this is because obviously you and I are in financial journalism. We're talking with people who are in the financial industry quite a lot, but it feels like the enthusiasm from traditional financial players, you know, I'm thinking bankers and traders, that has squarely moved on to DeFi, to things like Ethereum, to places where there seems to be a lot of innovation and a lot of changes happening around what you can actually do with the technology and uh, with a, a wider pool of crypto. It is no surprise that those whose professions and entire capitalistic purpose is to skim short-term flows without contributing to the long-term creation of real, productive capital are increasingly attracted to a space in which yieldless flows are flying around for whoever wants to grab them. On top of this, those that are losing interest in the alternative space in which productive carrying capacity is being created will one day make these very same people's employers and professions obsolete. We are shocked. Shocked! Notice that certainly Weisenthal and Alloway, but probably the bankers and traders to some extent too, seem to have fallen for the idea that the narrative is organic rather than a sophisticated media operation, or are at least a little too open to entertaining this idea for our liking. These are the same kinds of people who say things like trading is a use case, and who think liquidity is an end rather than a means. Amory makes a comment in a similar vein, even more confidently, writing, quote, A byproduct of building financial services on a transparent shared database 
is that all associated transaction data is publicly available in real time. For example, earnings generated by liquidity providers in the Uniswap protocol can be tracked on per-second granularity. Investors can use this data to decide how to allocate capital, providing for more efficient price discovery and allocation of resources, while regulators can monitor real-time transaction data to identify nefarious user activity. This is a significant departure from traditional capital markets where investors are left entirely in the dark until firms issue their quarterly earnings reports. The state of private markets is even more dire, with companies often inventing their own accounting metrics if they decide to release metrics at all. It is difficult to imagine investors making rational decisions when having to work with stale data. Amori is transparently not talking about investors in any coherent sense of the word, but speculators. Not finance, but financialization. There is nothing remotely economically useful to be gained from real-time financial data, and much to be socially lost, given it encourages yet more time to be wasted on the metagame of allocating capital rather than the game of creating capital. Investors should be left in the dark, because otherwise business operators will be spending all their time briefing ignorant financiers rather than operating businesses. If anything, quarterly reporting is far too regular as it is. No worthwhile capital formation happens over three months, and the idea that it does or can is cargo cult math, to which financiers are typically highly susceptible, but to which operators tend to have greater natural immunity. The ultimate irony is that Bitcoin fixes this. Not just crypto non-use cases, but the fundamental reason this capital bonfire exists in the first place, central bank intervention in financial markets. The capital being deployed in this space is chasing yield for reasons already mentioned. There is a perverse portfolio level concern at play here that oddly mirrors that faced by venture capitalists. The headline numbers highlighted in section two may all look enormous, but these are mere basis points for the end clients. This is their funny money. The biggest U.S. public pension plans and family offices are the ones ultimately on the hook for all of this, as well as whatever retail gets swept up in the hype. They don't have the time to do the kind of work we are doing right now because they invest at least a little in every single investment opportunity in the world. But that is not to say they are not sophisticated. They are amongst the most sophisticated investors around, or at least the most sophisticated capital allocators, precisely on the basis of their high-level view across the comparative merits of different asset classes. They can afford to put basis points into this experiment because they do not believe, as we do, that no real yield will be generated in the long term. We opened this section by noting that there is no intent to psychologize or pathologize, but we will conclude by breaking our own promise, positively. One cannot know, but can strongly suspect that the personal motivation of those involved with good and noble intentions are very likely some variation of, we need to rebuild the internet, and in doing so, have a shot at fixing finance as well.
Pressed further, they will likely give entirely accurate and laudable critiques of the way the internet and the financial services industry are currently designed. Nonetheless, that their diagnosis is sound tells us nothing about their proposed solution. As Dhruv Bansal and Ryan Gentry argued in their talk at Bitcoin Miami, the broken architecture of the internet is ultimately caused by central banking and the contemporary design and functioning of money. Or, a little more specifically and less anachronistically, the lack of a digitally native, censorship-resistant, and integrity-assured programmable money. Bitcoin fixes this. Altcoins do not, because in trading censorship-resistance and integrity-assurance for even more programmability, they break the innovation, and will likely themselves be broken as a result. In case it is unclear, we aren't attributing any malice to those doing this work. We know many personally and wish them all the best. Many were kind enough to contribute feedback to this piece. If we are wrong, they will be fine. If we are right, we echo Dhruv's comments in his and Ryan's talk linked to above. We hope they bring their projects, and more importantly, their talents, to Bitcoin. This will have a far greater chance at making a real long-term impact, as explained in the following section. Part 5. Layered Architecture and Gaul's Law Alright, that will close out Part 2 today. That is all I have got in me. Um, this There is still quite a bit to unpack in this piece, but that was definitely the biggest section, uh, and it was just packed with great stuff. Uh, I'll probably do a maybe a full guys take follow-up to all of this, and kind of, I've been talking about this a lot. I talked about this on Stefan Lavera's podcast uh, just the other day. Um, so we've been covering these ideas at length recently. Um, but, uh, but maybe I'll take the opportunity to do a guy's take and really just kind of hit everything from my perspective and re-explain a lot of what Alan Farrington and Big Al, um, uh, lay out in this piece. And then we can take a break on crypto and altcoins for a while because there's a lot of other great things, a lot of other great writing that I need to get to, uh, here on Bitcoin Audible. Uh, with that, uh, I just want to say thank you all. Um, sorry this one's taking a bit to get out, but it's a beast. A thank you to the absolutely incredible products and services that sponsor this show. I genuinely feel crazy lucky to have some of the best companies and honestly my favorite services in this space actually wanting to keep my show alive. Uh, it feels pretty amazing. We have got the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet for holding your keys and keeping your, your sats safe. Then we've got the Fold card and Fold app for stacking sats on every purchase you make with your Spin Plus debit card, and even more on the gift cards to major retailers. And then Swan Bitcoin for stacking automatically every day, every week, every month, whatever works for you, and automatically sending it straight to your cold storage on your BitBox. I literally use all three of these products religiously and they keep the mic powered at Bitcoin Audible. Check them out at guyswan.com, find them at the top of the page or in today's show notes. 
With that, we don't want to miss the conclusion of this utterly epic piece. Only the strong survive. Subscribe so you don't miss it on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, and until then, everybody, take it easy. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.